Hello, and welcome to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. This is episode 60 of the show, the Chuck Bednarik episode, if you will. He was a Hall of Fame two-way player while wearing number 60 with the Eagles in the 50s and 60s. And in this show, we also have a guest who does a couple different things while herself, more than a couple things, really. She is Tegan Ashby, the Philadelphia Phillies Assistant Director of Software Engineering in their Baseball Research and Development Department. Before joining the Phillies this year, she worked for the 76ers and the Nets in the NBA, and I'm pretty confident she's the first person we've had on the pod who majored in linguistics and studied ancient languages in college and grad school. So, in this episode, Tegan and I will talk about what a software developer does for baseball and basketball teams and the differences in working in the two sports. We'll talk about the kinds and volume of data that teams deal with, what an NBA engineering team looks like, balancing form and function as an engineer, her transition from linguistic studies to software development, how studying those ancient languages helps with programming, her recommendations on learning to process sports data, her women in sports data initiative, the world's oldest spreadsheets, and her favorite kind of pie. That is the baking kind of pie, not the mathematical constant. Then producer Sergio De La Esperia will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with the Philadelphia Phillies' Tegan Ashby. We're joined now on Expected Value by Tegan Ashby, Philly's Assistant Director of Software Engineering in their baseball R&D group. Tegan, thank you for joining us on the show. Let me start with just super high level. For those who you know aren't in the computer science, data science type of world, what does a software engineer do? What are you doing, very roughly speaking, on a day-to-day type of basis? <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting me to be here, Paul. Um, Interesting question, because I think software engineers, um, like the archetypical idea is, oh, like they just code all day. Uh, But the role is really to design, uh, implement and maintain software applications for programmers, essentially. So anything uh, that you interact with um, on a computer is is what a software engineer has, has developed. So broadly speaking, for a baseball team, you're taking all the data and turning it into something that other team employees, coaches, front office people can use to find the information they're looking for? Is that a fair way to summarize? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So my team is responsible for developing the infrastructure and tooling that everybody in baseball operations uses to do their jobs. So uh, our primary partners are our data scientists or quantitative analysts, uh, but we also work with stakeholders uh, across the club. So front office, uh, strategy, uh, coaching staff, as much as we as, as we can do to you know make make our team members lives uh, more about doing the baseball part of their job and less about like the administrative uh, details of their job and what what kind of data and volume of data are teams dealing with obviously this has changed a ton in the last decade or so what what data are what are your kind of inputs generally speaking and what's the volume that we're looking at here yeah, so our our bread and butter is, is really tracking data. And so we receive um, tracking data points for our pitchers, our catchers, the players on field, the ball, of course. Uh, and, and that can be like XY coordinates uh, and something that has come to MLB um, pretty recently in the past couple of years um, is biomechanical data or skeletal data, uh, which tracks um, certain key points on, on a player's body. Um, so like shoulder, hip, um, joints, uh, and, uh, 
I, I can give a, a little bit more accurate estimates for an NBA game. So, for example, an NBA game tracking data follows um, a basketball player's position, like X, Y coordinates on the court, and then the Z coordinates, um, the height um, of the ball. And that produces about a million rows of data per game. Um, tracking data uh, with skeletal points um, would probably increase like that volume of data uh, at least tenfold. And so you could extrapolate that to uh, a baseball game where you're sampling um, tracking at, say, 30 frames per second. Um, and uh, for like pitchers and catchers, uh, you would uh, tenfold increase that to uh, 300 frames per second. And so it becomes this massive amount of data, sometimes on the order of like over a terabyte uh, per game. Uh, and, and as you know, we play a lot of games of baseball. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so this, I know this isn't quite your wheelhouse, but just from like a data infrastructure standpoint for NBA, MLB, it must be something that's just kind of exploded in the past 10 years as teams try to figure out how to handle all this data and just, just whether storing, processing, all those things, let alone turn it into, you know, useful apps and things like that. Yeah, I think that's kind of like the, the great next frontier, especially on this point with skeletal data. Uh, the NBA is just starting to get skeletal data um, this upcoming season. Uh, and, you know, being in baseball now, I can tell you, it takes a lot of engineers to be able to to, to process this, to store it, uh, and, and to make it uh, clean in, in a way that is useful for our data scientists or our biomechanists or sports science scientists to, to turn it into something that they can do, um, you know, their work, their analysis on, but also that uh, my application development group can make tools that um, everybody in the organization can interact with and, and ask better questions. Yeah, so can, can you give us a sense? We'll, we'll do the NBA because you're a little more removed from that, having previously worked for the Sixers and the Nets. What does an NBA engineering development team look like? Just kind of from a you know, number of people that are doing your, your main general task, whether it's engineering, development, whatever it is. Yeah, so at the Sixers and the Nets, I was uh, pretty lucky because I got to work with other engineers. Um, but I'd say on, on average, um, it's not really a, a common job um, for an NBA team. You might have two to three engineers total um, if you're lucky. And, you know, that group is managing um you know, the all of the tracking data from from games, uh, the application development on top of that, uh, that our coaching analysts um, and um, players use um, it, our like internal um, data sets. So like scouting information, um, that's all like specific to an organization. So that's, we would consider that as a competitive advantage because you could be very specific of like what, you know, what, what is data and what are we valuing? Um, and uh, it, it becomes like pretty grueling, I think, uh, for a basketball systems engineer because you have like multiple jobs. I think that uh, being an, a software engineer uh, for a sports team, um, particularly uh, basketball, because uh, departments tend to be smaller, you do a lot of invisible work. Uh, and the people that you work with, the stakeholders that you're interacting with, like they can't evaluate whether you, know, you did the the cleanest code. Um, it was the most py pythonic, like beautiful, like object oriented uh, programming style. You know, they, they judge you on, on your output and also your basketball or, or baseball acumen. So you, you have to become kind of fluent um, in order to do your job um, and, you know, build the right things um, and, and to empower people to, to do their uh their sports job uh, but you also have to be a really good programmer and so you have to seek out like the practice and the feedback um 
externally almost because um, your day to day is reinforcing that in a way that like if you worked for a larger team um, in industry, your entire department would be software engineers. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Seems like it's kind of the eternal battle. I know, you know, we deal with it here on the engineering side too, of form versus function, I'll just say, where you can have what you reference this elegant, beautiful, efficient code um, that pulls out all the data you need, but you also need some, for lack of a better term, like pretty way for people to access it. How do you balance those two things in your your development world? Oh, it's like the chicken and the egg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I feel like I'm uh, I'm really lucky because I have a large team. So I, I manage both our data engineering group and our application development group. Uh, and that also encompasses like our DevOps and infrastructure and machine learning uh, and machine learning ops. Um, initiative. So I, I think that at the Phillies, we're especially well equipped uh, and, and designed to be a group that can handle, um, you know, these large data uh, sets um, and, and have that like internal ecosystem where uh, we are um, working to industry standards and we are, um, you know, pretty strict about like the quality of, of our code because we're, we're competitive just as the rest of the organization. And, uh, you know, this is our craft and we want to be the best at it. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, like the best way to extract data uh, from our databases is, is a query, but you can't expect um, a, a coach um, or a scout um, or a, a general manager um, to be able to do that quickly. So you either have somebody, you pull that data for them, or you create tooling um, that is abstracted at a higher level or um, a, an, an application interface uh, that allows uh, allows these people to ask their questions while removing some of the complexity of like how 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 this data is structured underneath like we we take care of all the plumbing uh and and you get to uh it's like a, an iphone right like you pick it up and you you automatically know how to to use an iphone or, or an android phone even though like the programming underneath it and all of the data and the infrastructure um is really really complex any specific kind of tips best practices that you have to make these apps development, anything like easy to use for, you know, a non-programmer? Yeah. So I, I'm a pretty big proponent of design and I think that your design isn't just aesthetics or making things uh, look pretty. It's design of how you are structuring your application infrastructure, how you're writing um, your functions, like how you're structuring um, your, your code and, and where you're um, like planning to, um, you know, share utilities. Uh, and, and so it's that intentionality of, of, and an ethos of making things user and developer friendly that manifests into a product that, uh, that people feel joy for using. And I think it also is really important, especially working in sports, uh, to develop relationships, like personal relationships uh, with the people that you're working. Because uh, I, I think often... Um, you know, it's kind of like the faster horse problem where somebody's describing this pain point to you, like they want to get something done uh, and they feel like, like okay, like the software engineers are going to be the problem solver. They're going to help me. And so they really want to help us help them by describing exactly what they want. Uh, but often they're describing like, oh, I want a faster horse uh, because they haven't seen a car yet. And so I think it's part of the job of a software engineer to, to think like big picture from their own experience that, uh, 
as a developer uh, and uh, you know, talking to people who are in this profession outside of sports, you know, how do I how do I build a car? How do I recommend a car? What are the steps that I can take to um, deliver what you didn't even know that you wanted to ask for? Right, right. So you mentioned a couple of differences between working in MLB and NBA, the size of the of your teams, the the data, the number of games. Anything else particularly different about that development world between NBA teams and MLB teams? Yeah. So one of the things um, I really miss about working in, in basketball is that you can use data uh, in games. So um, uh, for an MLB team, uh, due to uh, you know, just the history of the game, uh, I, I would say. <laughs> Tradition? <laughs> Tradition, yeah. You can't have internet in the dugout. And so you can't have a, a live feed for like in-game recommendations. Uh, and you can't make adjustments based off of um, like a real-time app. Um, I believe you can have something uh, in the dugout that's installed um, to an iPad uh, that uh, has been audited and improved uh, by the league office, uh, but you know it's not connecting to to your systems lab. You can't have somebody whispering uh, <laughs> recommendations um, across the wire, uh, and, and that's just the the nature of the game. But in basketball, um, I've certainly been part of of groups that um, were really progressive uh, and excited to experiment with you know, what what kind of things can we do to support in-game decision making? Uh, uh, can we um, use data to uh, make better challenge recommendations? Can we use data to uh, alleviate maybe some stress uh, about what's happening uh, during the first half of, of this basketball game? And and can it inform the kind of decision making um, we'll we'll make uh, with lineups? Um, for the second half, like what kind of adjustments um, should we or should we not make? Uh, so I think that's one key difference is that like there's an entirely different domain um, removed from uh, product development uh, between MLB and, and the NBA. Uh, but another one is you know, because of the size of MLB's software engineering departments and, and R&D in general and the longer history of sabermetric um, or sabermetric friendly approaches um, in the game of baseball, I think that there's more of a, it, it's more pervasive through, through the organization. Uh, and so there's um, a little bit more freedom to get into the weeds with, with certain things, which I think is fun. So I want to get into your background a little bit because I think this is a pretty fascinating career transition for you. You have a, a bachelor's in linguistics from Penn and then yes. did graduate studies at Cal Berkeley in ancient Near Eastern and biblical languages, literatures, and linguistics. Uh, yes. Obviously not your normal background for you know someone who works for a, a sports team or is in engineering. What prompted that transition? How'd that come about? <laughs> well, I'm a pretty proud Cal dropout. <laughs> <laughs> um, go Bears. Uh I so my undergraduate studies in, in linguistics, um, I, I focused on formal linguistics. I was really interested in the structure and, and form of, of language and how do you um, analyze large amounts of, of information, how information is structured, uh, which I think if you talk to a computer scientist, sounds pretty familiar. And a lot of linguistics departments um, 
are either in a computer science uh, department or our sister departments, which is um, essentially the case for me at Penn. Um, but also, I think studying ancient languages is similar to sports in that you have to self-service what kind of uh programming applications you have available to to do your work because there's not really an industry available program that you can just take off the shelf to uh, you know, build a Sumerian dictionary or build a, an archive uh, of texts and like auto lemmatize them and uh, parse them like you have to do it by hand and it's kind of the same story for like you can't really just uh go off the shelf and uh, say, hey, can you build this rebounding model for me? Or like, uh, I have these um, massive data sets um, that are really specific. Uh, can you like do quality control on um, the uh, exit velocity <laughs> uh, stats that we have for, uh, for the bat? Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's fairly similar in that it, you, you have to you get to ask really big, hard questions, uh, and and you use the same like fundamental tools, um, databases, programming languages, uh, to to try and answer these questions. So, from a I'll just call it a skills standpoint, you know, there would be development engineering tools programs that, to an outsider at least, you would not have been familiar with as a linguistics major and someone who studied that. How did you go about? learning those specific tools and skills for a development role? Uh, so I, as a linguist, uh, I, I did have to learn how to program. Uh, and uh, I was also really interested in working in the digital humanities space um, a, a, as a way to investigate uh, these questions about the ancient world and, and ancient texts and ancient languages. Uh, so it, it's kind of like a dissatisfying answer that I, I learned it in school, but um, I learned web application kind of for fun as a as a hobby uh, because I, I like uh, making things. Um, I'm a knitter. Um, I like to to paint watercolor. I like to bake pie, uh, and uh, making making web applications, making mobile applications is kind of uh, like the same spirit of of being a maker uh, and. Uh, I just loved the the process of you know learning how to learn, uh, and uh, sort of fell into working uh, in sports because I, I realized that I could. Any of these you know, you list a whole bunch of languages that work on French, German, Spanish, Akkadian, Sumerian, Sanskrit. Any any of these in particular like apply to what we'll call it the programming world? Like, is any whether it's you know syntax or whatever it might be, anyone particularly? relevant that maybe surprised you or helped as you made a transition in the career? Yeah. Uh, so Sanskrit uh, has been a big one. Uh, it, it's kind of, um, you know, one of the first uh, programming languages itself because it's very generative. Um, there's uh, an ancient um, grammarian, Panini, uh, that has uh, like the first like rules for how to form Sanskrit grammar or um, Sanskrit phonology rules called Sandhi. Uh, and, and that's like essentially what, what programming languages are and, and how they're designed. So that, that was really helpful. Um, but I'd say Sumerian has been the most helpful skill um, and, and maybe not necessarily from uh, like learning how to write software, although that, uh, you know, because of 
you know, how few people get the opportunity to study Sumerian. Um, you have to build your own tools uh, to be able to do so. Uh, but like the structure of, of learning Sumerian, I think, provided a really good foundation for um, how to think about data and how to think about storing data and how uh, you could service something that's really esoteric or obscure um, to a, an audience, like even if they're an archaeologist, right? An archaeologist isn't necessarily going to be a fluent um, reader of, of Sumerian. Uh, you know, how can you make like this sort of like really granular thing accessible? Uh, and Sumerian as a language is really interesting. It's a, a language isolate. So it's like a, a language like Basque. Uh, so it doesn't have any other known relatives. Um, like structurally, it's really different from, say, an English or a, a French. Um, so it's a, an ergative, um, absolutive language. So like instead of having like subject and object markers, it has agent um, markers. So it depends on like the transitivity of the verb. And so like learning how to study those paradigms without having a reference um, is exactly like learning how, uh, how to program in Python. Uh, and, and that like you're, you have to like look for patterns and think about like why is this you know why is this syntax this way and what are like other patterns in like uh, Java or uh, JavaScript uh, which are entirely different uh, and, and what what do I know about like the inherent structure that I can use to abstract um, you know for acquiring this skill yeah yeah the more you explain the I don't know, parallels or connections between, let's we'll say, linguistics and programming, the more it makes sense. It, it definitely feels a little counterintuitive at first, but it does make sense the more you talk through it. I have to ask, several of your you know, bios stuff, you mentioned maybe kind of jokingly that you were studying the world's oldest spreadsheets. <laughs> what do the world's oldest spreadsheets look like? Like, very curious. Like, what are, what are the original spreadsheets, if you will? So these are cuneiform tablets, which are written in either Sumerian or Akkadian. Um, and you know, these texts come from uh, Iraq, um, ancient Mesopotamia, um, Akkadian is a Semitic language, uh, and Sumerian is that language isolate. Uh, and yeah, they, they're kind of like uh, these clay tablets, they're almost like paperback sized, uh, and they're incised with um, a reed stylus, and, and the script almost like, I, I would say, looks like chicken scratch. Uh, and it's in part because of like how they were read, like you're using shadow uh, to see what the sign and uh, what the form of the sign looks like. Um, but I, I think so, so jokingly, like these are like this data set of, of text is really interesting because this is the most like documented period uh, in human history up until the Industrial Revolution, particularly this period called the Ur Three period. Um, which is about like a uh, hundred years, um, uh, about 4,000 years ago. Uh, and the vast majority of, of these text genres are basically like receipts or like accounting texts of like, okay, like, the, like this many hectares of uh, this type of wheat uh, and we um, funneled it into uh, this temple on, on this date. And so it's like almost like an archive of, of records. It's like being an accountant. Uh, and so like part of the, the process of, of learning or investigating 
um, these archives and trying to reconstruct ancient societies is uh, you have to read a lot of these texts and they say a lot of the same things. And it's always reminded me of uh, the structure of uh, an Excel spreadsheet or like even uh, like my bank, my bank account statements. Right, right. Yeah, it's a big ledger in, in stone or, or clay or whatever it might be. Uh, for just go back to kind of the engineering thing for someone who's interested in learning software engineering with the goal of working for a sports team. Is anything specific that is kind of sports specific? Obviously, you can you know study in school. Is there anything kind of sports specific you would recommend people get familiar with if that's the direction they want to go? Yeah, so I've been really spoiled working in sports because I have access to all of these proprietary data sets, uh, and you know I have the budget to to pay a vendor for for these tracking data. It's not normally available to the public, but there's a really great open source community for working with sports data, uh, and I'd highly recommend people seek out um, things like uh, Sport Dataverse um, or Pyball, which is a Python API wrapper um, for um, NBA stats, and it uh, opens up um, the opportunity to work with both NBA and WNBA data, and uh, uh, it's also uh, a wonderful package uh, written by one of my colleagues here at the Phillies, uh, Pat McFarlane. Uh, and, and I think that like these kinds of resources are useful for a couple of reasons. Uh, you learn how to access and interact with data. It exposes you to um, starting to apply you know, sports analytics principles, learning how to ask questions of data uh, and, and to structure it in a certain way. And then I would go like a second um, step further and I would say almost like think about like, okay, you've accessed this data now. Uh, how would you almost like uh, in a very persnickety way, like manage it and store it. Uh, and uh, I've always talked with um, you know some fellow engineers working in professional sports, and I'm like, man, like I wish we had a hackathon, or like a uh, like a project, right? Like a um, application project where you, we didn't ask anybody to do the analysis work; they just uh, pulled the data down or scraped the data. Um, put it in a database, threw it in Docker, and then like, that's it, right? Like you, you've you demonstrated like this, this pipeline or, or life cycle of uh, essentially like what we do um, uh, on the software engineering side to make it you know, more easily available. Right. Yeah. Those are the first steps that you often have to do in your world, right? Where you just have to, they, you get the raw data feeds and you have to turn them into, some, you have to organize them, make them a little more useful just as a starting point, right? Exactly. Yeah. We're like Zen rock garden um, <laughs> maintainers. <laughs> uh-huh. So you mentioned uh, or sort of referenced uh, initiatives and stuff, and you co-founded the Women in Sports Data Initiative. Uh, tell, tell me about that. What, what, is, what is it? What do you hope to do with it? So Women in Sports Data is an initiative to amplify women's voices uh, working in professional sports, uh, especially um, on the team operations side. Um, but across the technical spectrum. So we include analysts, data scientists, and software engineers. And the goal isn't just to attract more women um, into our field, and it's not just to keep women um, working here. It's to simply be a platform. Because I think uh, 
being a, a woman in, in this sport uh, or in this space is, um, it's, it can be pretty isolating. Um, you know, at the Nets, I was the only woman in the entire front office. Uh, and because our work uh, in general is so clandestine, it's really hard to develop um, you know, professional networks and, and, and partnerships uh, and, and learn from each other in a way that uh, I, I think our male colleagues have more readily access to. Uh, so the goal, um, we had our first symposium last summer in Brooklyn on the courts um, uh, for the Nets overlooking uh, an incredible view of lower Manhattan. Uh, and we also uh, hosted a asynchronous six-week sprint hackathon um, with data from Statsbomb uh, from the men's 2020 Euros. And the goal is just um, to your earlier uh, question, uh, provide data sets of what it's like as close as possible working for a professional sports team um, give guidance on to like, what are the things that teams are looking for? Like our question prompt was you build an application and make a recommendation that a front office or, um, a coaching staff, uh, would use. Uh, so, uh, trying to get more away from academic questions to practical applications of all of this is uh, in in service of making better decisions, of making more competitive decisions, and and helping people, um, you be the best versions of of them of themselves, uh, whether they're um, part of team operations staff or they're you know, literally competing for the championship um, on the field or um, on the court. Uh, so it, it, it's a it's a goal of normalization, but it's also uh, more about celebration and amplification because we wanted, um, or at least one of my primary goals was, you know, I wanted my colleagues, I wanted uh, my general manager, I wanted uh, my peers um, in, in the industry uh, to see a day of women uh, on stage speaking very specifically about um you know, what they do, you know, their primary um, competencies uh, without having to answer the question, you know, what's it like to be a woman in sports? Because the answer is like, you know, honestly, it's, it's not like always the best. Right. Yeah. How can, how can people support your initiative or more generally women in the industry? Well, for one, you can come, you could, you could definitely come to the symposium. Uh, we're in the process of planning our second one here in Philadelphia uh, and should have some exciting announcements coming up uh, in the next couple weeks. Uh, so come uh, or uh, volunteer as a mentor or um, amplify the event uh, on social media and, and to your networks. Uh, but it, it's really just listening. Uh, and, and participating uh, in and making um, it a space where uh, we're all getting better. Yep. Yeah. So womeninsportsdata.org is the website. We'll have that link in our show notes and along with some other things related to what Tegan and I have talked about. Um, all right. We're going to wrap things up with our playing favorites segment. We'll rip through a number of your favorite things just to get to know you a little bit better. What is your favorite number and why? Uh <laughs> I guess it's probably 12, uh, and it's, uh, so growing up in Wyoming, uh, we have only four, um, 
four-digit license plates. And so I like to play this game called the license plate game, which is trying and um, add uh, or inject um, uh, formulas into the license plates to get them to zero. So I like uh, 12 because uh, it's uh, sequential, one, two. uh, And then the next uh, numbers, three, four, are... um, you can multiply to get to 12. And so it's just a, yeah, it's, it's just a nice number. I like it. I like it. Uh, favorite athlete when you were a kid. Oh, I have three. Okay. Uh, I, I can't pick my favorites. Um, That's all right. so, <laughs> uh, my, my favorite athlete, um, was Venus Williams, um, who I idolized when she won, um, Wimbledon. And I think one of the coolest things about watching Venus and Serena, uh, just, utterly dominate uh, for so long was that it was one of the only instances of like seeing female professional athletes uh, be acknowledged as the best at their craft bar none. Uh, and also it's just, they're, they're so powerful and um, so passionate that uh they they really model like what it's like to be a champion and and to be competitive. Um, another example, I used to be a springboard diver, so I was a very big fan of Laura Wilkinson, who won the gold medal um, in Sydney. Two thousand Olympics, uh, it, yeah. Exactly, yes, ten meter platform. Uh, and uh, my third answer is uh, having grown up in Wyoming. Uh, I belong to the Church of Denver Broncos, and so my favorite <laughs> Denver Broncos player was Champ Bailey. And I've always been a big fan of the quarterback. Laura Wilkinson, one of my favorite Sydney memories, only because of the time zones, like most of the stuff I had spoiled for me, but for whatever reason, I didn't know the outcome of that one, of that event. And so like I watched that, you know, I'm sure it was 12 hours later, but I watched it, didn't know, and got very excited about it. So I like yeah, that. Yeah, it was kind of a spoiler too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you have a favorite pie to bake. You mentioned big into pies. You have a favorite one you like to make or eat? So my favorite one to eat is sour cherry pie, but you have to be really diligent in going to the farmer's market because they're not available very often, like maybe two, three weeks out of the summer. So it's a specific kind of cherry. It's a specific type of cherry. It's sour cherry. It's not like the cherries that you get at the... um, at the supermarket. Um, they're like more of like a bright red and they're like the perfect level of tart for baking into a pie, but it's, it's a lot of work to make that pie. And it's also very seasonal. So my favorite pie to bake, um, like as a regular activity is blueberry pie, because it's really just like put, uh, all of your, your spices and sugar, uh, ingredients, toss and macerate with the blueberries and then dump it into your, your pie shell. And then you're good. Easy and delicious. What more do you need? Exactly. And finally, do you have a favorite how did I get here moment? By that, I mean, you know, this career's brought you to some interesting and cool places and you're just kind of at a moment where you're able to take in like, all right, this is this is pretty slick where I've gotten to go. <laughs> okay, I have three, one for each team. Okay. Um, the first one is probably a couple weeks into my tenure at, at the Sixers. And like, I really did not like grow up um, thinking that I could work for a sports team, even though I had been a massive sports fan my entire life. Um, I, I even remember like going to school uh, and thinking like, oh, like how could I possibly work for the Eagles? Like I don't have any like skills uh, that uh, 
maybe the Eagles would want, but maybe I could like learn how to be a cheerleader or something. It would just be cool to uh, like be in that space. And then I kind of forgot about it um, for, for several years. Um, but uh, I found myself like three weeks into uh, my job at the Sixers. I had been tasked with preparing um, a postseason retrospective um, in collaboration with um, some of the data scientists uh, with the team. And uh, my, my boss at the time, who's now the AGM for the Portland Trailblazers, um, he brought me in and he was like, so I'm going to put you in the coach's room uh, because you did so much work on this. Is that cool? I'm like, okay, <laughs> sure. Uh-huh. He's like, all right, let's go. So I go to the, this coach's room and Brett Brown and, and his coaching staff, um, Monty Williams um, was part of the staff at this time, um, were so warm and welcoming um, Like when I had started, but I'd never been in, in the coaching room in, in, in this environment. Uh, and I'd especially not been um, in a situation where I was uh, responsible for presenting um, any work. Uh, and uh, again, I was the only woman in, in this space. Uh, and Brett uh, Brown, uh, he did this really amazing, lovely thing. Um, he has this um, fantastic, like, main um Australian uh, hybrid accent and he just starts off like the conversation of like listen up everybody like Tegan is really smart and uh, she knows all of these dead languages which had nothing to do with the work that I'd done it's just a a proxy Uh, and we all need to um, like listen and pay attention and um, you know really dig into, into this work. And at, at the time I'm like, Oh wow. Like that's so nice. But, uh, as I've, I've been in sports, I've come more and more to appreciate, um, just that gesture of, you know, establishing like, yeah, like this is a person who obviously didn't play NBA basketball is not a, a professional player, uh, but you can contribute in a way that we don't even know yet. Uh, and to you know, reinforce that this is a space that's welcoming and you should give that this person respect um, it was so powerful. And so I, I feel a deep gratitude and deep affection for Brett Brown for having done that um, because I think it really catapulted um, my confidence and, and sense of belonging um, in this space. Um, the second story uh, is a little bit more funny. Um, during... Um, my first year with the Nets uh, during the draft, um, it was uh, the, the first season in a long time that our team had multiple first round picks. Uh, and so we were part of the ESPN broadcast for draft night and I was in the war room. Uh, and I didn't know, um, you know, I, I knew that there were going to be cameras, uh, but I didn't really know like uh, exactly like when or, or, or what was going to happen. And uh we submitted our first pick, uh, and about like 30 seconds later, my phone starts um, like lighting up because uh, uh, I, I'm just like looking very sternly, and there's like uh, like multiple um, I, uh, pictures of of me <laughs> on ESPN, which I thought was like, oh wow, welcome to the league. <laughs> and uh, the third one is um, going to Clearwater. Uh, and uh, just standing uh, in the ballpark for the first time and casually talking to 
um, our major league manager, Rob Thompson. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was more of like a, a social event um, for, for the group of Phillies uh, baseball ops um, who were down there at the time. And uh, I casually mentioned to him, uh, like, I may not uh, be a baseball expert yet, but uh, the one thing I do bring to the table is uh, I've never missed the playoffs. I've never <laughs> won, but I've never missed the playoffs. It's a good start. You got to got to be there to win it, right? Exactly. All right. Well, thanks for sharing those stories. It's always great to hear just kind of people's experience in the industries. Thanks for uh, everything you shared with us. Tegan Ashby, Philly's Assistant Director of Software Engineering. Thank you for being with us on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks to Tegan Ashby for joining us on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at Boonsushi, B-U-N-S-U-S-H-I. Check our show notes for that link. Links to the Women in Sports Data Initiative, the Sports Dataverse she mentioned, and a whole lot more. I'm joined now by producer Sergio De La Espria, another guy who's got a unique background and path to get to this sports analytics world that we are in right now. Sergio, welcome to the show. What did you uh, take away from that conversation with Tegan? honestly you just took my bit it was great that's, oh, sorry that's kind of my thing you know I, I love being the the non-data uh origins person that works in data it's really good i also love that only on expected value do you have to clarify which pie when referring <laughs> to someone who likes to bake <laughs> i think a that is of, a bunch of nerds here let me tell you i know it's it was i was like what do you mean you have to specify oh yeah that's right there's like this whole mathematical thing that goes on here um, but that's what happens when you have a storytelling background and come into a, uh, a data world. So, um, no, th- that was one of my biggest takeaways in all seriousness, how she has this really cool, diverse background. Um, those who listen to this podcast already know I have a really diverse background in terms of getting into sports data. And so for me, it was really cool to listen to someone else's path. Mine comes from the performing arts, from the theater, from music, all those things. And hers comes from linguistics and um, just being really smart because in order to have all of those, you know, dead languages in your head and understand them, you kind of have to have a baseline intelligence, my opinion personally, but um, it was really cool to listen to. It was really cool um, how you were really, you were really in your, um, and and you said this before we started recording, so I feel comfortable saying it, but you were really in your nerdy bag. You you really were able to to, to kind of tie in together these, this linguistics background that she has with how she works with coding and with finding out how to implement data in the proper way and and how the the those linguistic dead languages that she knows can can help her with these modern day computer languages that we're dealing with um you know there's a lot in the news about stuff like you know with ai and you know like everyone knows it's or as at least has heard of stuff like chat gpt and stuff like that but it's very interesting with how much these computers really pull from, you know, humanistic languages, right? They only know as much information as we give them. And so, of course, it, I, something I never thought of until I started, you know, listening to the interview, but it, I never thought that that was something that could really integrate with technology in a way, you know, you think those languages are dead, but really they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're just kind of reimagined in a modern sense. And that's really was my big, one of my biggest takeaways for sure. Yeah, when I was prepping, I was going through a resume and you see linguistics and you see Aramaic and all these Sumerian, all these different languages. And at first I was almost taken aback, confused, like, wait, how do you make this transition? And then 
I mean, maybe part of it's my two years of high school Latin coming, but, but you just start to kind of see, and she explained this much better than I can, but how there's carryover between syntax and organization, all these different things between these languages and coding. And I think it goes to what we've talked about this. I tell anyone who's interested in the business, you can get into sports almost any possible way and sports analytics, but whatever it is, um, because a sports team, we'll just call it, or a company has the same kinds of jobs in a lot of ways that any company does. There's just obviously you're dealing in sports rather than whatever healthcare or whatever it might be. You know, there are marketing jobs, there are sales jobs, there are communications jobs, there are analytics jobs. Uh, so, you know, her path is a path. There's no right path. I think the only important thing that I always tell people is you want to be able to show what you can do for whatever job you're trying to get into. So, you know, you can major in linguistics and kind of learn how to program, learn how to do software development. And if you have these projects and these body of work that you can show, that's what matters. Whether it's, again, whether it's programming, analytics, or something more on a whole different side of things, you just got to be able to do it. The major itself helps. You know, I wanted to get into media. I majored in communications. It was easier to have whatever, a resume, tape, CD at the time uh, that, that way than to kind of do it separately on my own. But I could have majored in, you know, I have friends in the business, they major in whatever it was, history, but you do games and all that and you can still get there. So yeah, there's just lots of paths. You just kind of got to figure out, you know, where do you want your path to go as is as important as what the path is. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's also very poignant that it's not necessarily about what you major in, like you said, it's more the skill sets that you get from whatever major it is you learn, right? Um, I was an orientation leader at the University of Florida, go Gators. Um, it's it's kind of cut. It's 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 legally it, it's a contract in my degree where every time right, I right. mention the university, Check that box. I have to say that. So. Right, right. And on a weekend where Quinnipiac won their first national championship in any sport in men's ice hockey, I, I, right. I feel like I also have to say go Bobcats. So there you um, go. But that's not the point of this. The point I was trying to get at before my ADD brain took off was <laughs> that um, when I was an orientation leader at the University of Florida, go Gators. I one of the things that they told us, and it was a very interesting statistic, was that the number one and number two um, major undergrad majors of applicants to med school and law school. So people who take the MCAT, people who take the LSAT to try to go in, into those post-professional graduate programs were music. And then I believe after that was English. So it's one of those like, oh, okay, I don't have to major in biology. I don't have to major in chemistry. I don't have to major in economics and government. No. Not necessarily. You just have to make sure you learn the skill sets necessary and the qualities necessary to achieve whatever it is that you want to achieve. And then I also think in Tegan's case, I also really enjoyed the story she told uh, about, I believe it was Brett Brown with the Sixers, where she came in to talk to you know the team and stuff. And he really gave her a really nice introduction um, and, and really kind of set the stage of, hey, I know that this person isn't a professional athlete. I know this person doesn't have the same basketball experience that you NBA players have. Um, but there's something worth taking away from this specific person and her knowledge set. And I think not only was that very important for someone who wasn't a professional basketball player, but I also think in the context of what Tegan was speaking about, and I also think the big takeaway there is because, you know, she's a woman entering and going to talk to a male dominated field, which let's face it, most fields are male dominated. It was very nice to see that 
someone like Brett Brown um, and, and, you know, there are people out there that can see, okay, this person may not be, may not have the same background that you have, whether it's in this case, you know, she's a woman walking into a men's basketball team or to get, go even deeper in the weeds. She doesn't have the, that basketball playing experience that these NBA players have, but there's still something worth taking, right? There's still some information that will be beneficial to you in your profession, what you do even though you may not think that it's relative to it, you know, that's what kind of makes us all human, you know, everything kind of ties into each other. And I just thought that that was on another, you know, tie in that, of course, was with the with the cloud and the emphasis on a woman working in sports, which should not be, uh, which which should not be overlooked at all, but also included that whole, you never know where you're going to get certain traits and tools. Um that, you know, her background and as someone who has a diverse background working in something that they didn't study in per se, you get those tools in those areas and you're able to apply them to your everyday life and your everyday yep. positions. Yeah, getting endorsements is super helpful. I mean, it seems kind of obvious, but I mean, I've been on the similar receiving end working in soccer and soccer research without like, look, I didn't play past junior high competitively or rec leagues. And I, I didn't play. Let's just say that. But getting certain analysts to, you know, praise your work in front of the new analyst, the new talent or producer, whatever, like it gives you instant credibility and it's super helpful. It helps you just build confidence in yourself also, but also just makes the whole team that you're joining that much better. So you, a, you can just it, say that Clint Dempsey complimented you. It's okay to say that. It's it okay. not Clint Dempsey. No, Clint <laughs> was probably the one just looking skeptical at this nerd with his numbers, if anything. Deuce, deuce face, but at Paul. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, he wanted to go fishing, which can't blame him. Good work if you can get it. Exactly. All right. Thank you, Sergio. Thanks one more time to Tegan Ashby for joining us on the show. For more baseball guests, check out our archives. We've got conversations with Jonathan Toskus, who oversees advanced scouting for the Nationals, Daniel Adler, now a VP and assistant GM with the Twins, or last week's show, Carlos Munoz, bullpen catcher for Team USA, among many others. As always, we appreciate any feedback and sharing, along with reviews on Apple or wherever you get podcasts. You can reach us on Twitter at True Media Sports, T R U Media Sports, or email us expected value at truemedianetworks.com. On behalf of producer Sergio de la Espria and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world.